I have something to say. Oh, great. What? Did you say great? Oh, great. Oh, great. What are you going to say to me? <laughs> um, I was listening to old Ghislaine trial episodes when I was down there uh, at the courthouse. And narcissistic. You're not going to understand this reference, but some of our listeners will. Mm-hmm. And for those who do, I think it'll bring a smile to their face. So I just want to say it. The um, clip that Young Chomsky puts in the the like theme music for the Ghislaine episodes where it says Ghislaine Maxwell, like that person's voice. Can you put it in right here? Ghislaine Maxwell. Sounds exactly like Brian Windhorst. That's just, that's, he might as well be speaking Ukrainian. If you know what I'm saying, it sounds exactly like fucking Brian Windhorst. Well, call my ass brace lose donkey. What? Win win horse? Lose donkey? I don't know. Oh, Windhorst with with a D and a T at the end. Windhorst. Call my ass uh, Breezy Mule. (laughs) Hello, everyone. I'm Liz. My name. Well, listen, that's a little above your pay grade, but I'll give you a hint. Initials (laughs) B-R-A-C-E. And of course, we're joined by producer Young Chomsky, and the podcast is called it's called Tronon. Hello. Hello. Um, it would be so funny if you, when people asked you, when they were like, wait, Brace, that's a weird name. You were just like, yeah, it's an acronym. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I don't like that. I got to think of one on the spot. Uh, well, I can't say, all right, R is going to be tough. It is going to be tough. Oh, my God. Well, um, while Brace thinks about that, I will intro too. the episode, uh-huh. which is a it's a good one, if I do say so myself. We have our old pal, Seth Harp, on the show. Everyone's favorite, fan favorite, I believe. Um, here to talk about a slew of articles that he has uh, recently published in Harper's Rolling Stone, One Forthcoming, and The Intercept, all of which will be linked in the show notes, um, all about his time in Ukraine, uh, trying to track down the Foreign Legion. What is the Foreign Legion? doesn't exist. Does it exist? And what's up with that? <laughs> balding, balding, retarded, asexual, crypt keeper haircut, comma, Esquire. Crypt keeper haircut? Just kidding, you are not out there on any of the many battlefields that dot this beautiful little place we call home. Uh, no, you are in fact listening to a new episode of Truanon, of course with returning guests, so not a new guest, but a well-worn and much-beloved one, investigative reporter Seth Harp. Uh, Seth, how you doing? Hey, Brace, good. How are y'all doing? <laughs> good to see you again, Seth. Yeah. Good to see y'all again. Thanks for having me. 
Glad that you're back home safe. Yeah, likewise. Glad you survived the Ghislaine Maxwell trial. I'm sure that was pretty hairy. <laughs> well, Liz was actually unfortunately um, killed, and we, we just got a new Liz. There's like a lot of clones of her. She was part of some experiments as a child. So uh, we have a, like, I think it's our third Liz we're on. Have you right seen that now. movie, Multiplicity? No. Oh, my God. At least Young Chomsky's nodding. Our listeners out there know what I'm talking about. <laughs> So we're having you on today uh, because you just recently, I think last week, published an article in Harper's, which is as the far as I can tell. New Yorker. Yeah. And right. also a longer <laughs> version of your own last name um, <laughs> called Army of Shadows Searching for the Ukrainian Foreign Legion. Um, and you spent some time in Ukraine at the beginning of the war. Uh, you know, I, I, you know, I, sp- I spoke to you, I, I, you know, several times back then and, you know, you kind of told me what you're working on and it's, it's pretty impressive piece along with the other ones you've written on the war. I know there's one for at least one for Rolling Stone. And I know you were saying you got a new one coming out in the, uh, in the intercept, which should actually be out by the time this is, this, this, uh, episode is out. Um, so can you tell us, you know, the, the reasoning you went over there, um, and, and really what you were looking for? Yeah, uh, the assignment I had from Harper's was like, as soon as the war began, they sent me over there to find out what was going on with this foreign legion, uh, the International Legion, because uh, you probably remember in those days, there was a huge amount of press coverage about all of these foreign volunteers going over to Ukraine. President Zelensky of Ukraine came out, you know, I think within two or three days of the invasion and announced with great fanfare the creation of the International Legion for the Territorial Defense of Ukraine is the official name of it. Uh, And this led to an enormous amount of press coverage, literally hundreds of articles, Mm -hmm. every single publication you can imagine. I don't think there was a single major U.S. publication that didn't um, cover it. So the assignment was to go over there and find out more or less what what the deal was with with this unit. Um, that was a story that I wrote for Harper's, um, you know, a, a lot of it involves the, the chaos and disorganization that I found there. A lot of the, uh, smoke and mirrors around, uh, the reality of the, of the foreign legion, uh, and the extent to which it was basically an exercise in, in propaganda by the, by the Ukrainians and a very good and effective one, uh, at that, um, since then, I've continued to cover the story, uh, as it's become a clearer picture has, has come into focus of what exactly, um, this unit, what exactly, who exactly belongs to this unit, um, and what exactly it's doing. I recently, uh, the, so the Rolling Stone piece is about some of the first casualties because, uh, when I was first there in March and April, there hadn't been a single Westerner killed in combat. Um, and since then there have been a number of them. I think there's been about seven, uh, KIA according to my count and, and probably an equal number of, uh, POWs taken. Uh, so the piece of Rolling Stone is about how, about you know the first indications uh, of what uh, the actual composition of the Foreign Legion is, which is primarily uh, U.S. and U.K. veterans, mm-hmm. uh, combat veterans, people with not only military experience but substantial military experience. So that appears to be, to the extent the International Legion actually exists as units that are uh, really organized and going into combat. That's that's uh, who they are. Uh, and then the intercept piece that you mentioned that'll be out um, probably tomorrow morning um, is about a couple of volunteers who were killed in the International Legion who appear to have been uh, far right extremists. And so it's another element of the story as it's continued to develop and evolve. 
I wouldn't say it's the majority uh, of the of the guys that are going over there, but certainly there are now some first indications that a number of them uh, may be, you know, outright neo Nazis. Um, so I'm happy to get into into all of that. Um, but you know, I also know that we want to talk a little bit about uh, the volunteers in Syria and the YPG as well, because as we were discussing before we started recording, you know, the story of the International Legion mm-hmm. in Ukraine probably um, has a certain uh, significance for for you uh, personally. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely want to get into that. Um, yeah, something something that was sort of really notable about Zelensky coming out so early in the war and calling for this international legion. Um, and you know, it was, like you said, tons of ink spilled about it. A lot of press, um, really with that as like the main hook, a lot of press that didn't really seem very well researched, sort of just like, uh, I guess regurgitating PR with maybe a couple caveats here and there that, you know, these are the reported numbers. or this is, you know, this is the alleged, uh, I, I mean, amount of people that were heading over. Um, but it seemed part of a concerted effort by the Ukrainian government, quite understandably, to shore up international support. Um, and so you go up, obviously, they're doing it at the high levels with NATO and with, you know, trying to get basically various non-NATO countries behind them as well, or at least a raid against Russia. Um, and this was sort of more like a um, both a PR, PR move and a kind of almost like grassroots uh, move, really to a certain, I think, subset of like you said, probably mostly American and British young men to get them behind Ukraine, or at least to get them really interested so that they're looking into it more. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I know that we spoke when you were, when you were in Poland doing some, some work over there and, and you mentioned that you saw a lot of, um, a lot of Westerners heading for the border. And so can you tell us about like your sort of initial contact with like people who were like, what kind of people were actually trying to get into Ukraine to join, to join the foreign legion and, and were they successful? Well, it's uh, it was a big, kind of complicated, chaotic, ongoing story at the time that I was over there in March and April. And a lot of those initial news reports, documentaries and stuff that came out really treated the volunteers in, in a rather credulous way, basically just reported everything that they were saying. So you got this really confused picture that for the most part was presented as uh, there's 20,000 foreigners over there from 52 different countries and they're taking the fight to Russian forces. Yeah. Um, all of that, you know, when I was there, it, th- there was nothing of the kind going on. Almost all the volunteers who showed up to Poland were getting turned back. Uh, they were a very mixed bag of people with uh, um, military experience, no military experience, varying levels of, you know, psychological stability, um, all, all kinds of different ideological motivations. And the Ukrainians just basically sent most of those people home. Um, now, since then, you know, it's, it's shaped up. To, to appear that they are selecting guys that have military experience. So if you're a veteran of Iraq, the Iraq war, Afghanistan war from the U S the UK, they, they will take you. But yeah, at that time it was a total, you know, total shit show at the border there. And, and the, the amount of rumors and misinformation were just completely out of control. I mean, almost every volunteer that I spoke to was convinced that the Ukrainians were using volunteers as like a meat shield and just throwing mm-hmm. them in front of the Ukrainian army. But Actually, none of that that was happening at the time, um, but uh, yeah, yeah, that was that was Poland. You described the the foreign legion. Um, I think you said such as it is that it exists, or like such as it exists. And I'm just curious how if you can kind of explain, like, I mean, how integrated is it, or or is it even a thing that we can kind of 
talk about as a sort of cohesive unit in any sort of real kind of real way? Well, look, I think that the the main significance of the International Legion was a propaganda stunt on part right. of the Ukrainians. Um, and the, the Harper's piece is mostly about that, about the Ukrainians' media savvy and their ability mm-hmm. to play Western media like a fiddle, basically. And, you know, for what it's worth, like props to them, I kind of understand w- why they would do that. And, it, you know, it worked, it has wor- it worked for them really well, it led to this yeah. deluge of, of positive press coverage. But the Ukrainians have uh, the largest army in Europe, if you don't count the Russians. Mm-hmm. Um, they have a huge amount of untrained reserves. Um, that they um, so they don't need any more manpower. Basically, like they they don't need foreigners to come to Ukraine. They're completely unnecessary, um, except for the value that they serve as sort of combat ambassadors, for for lack of a better term, from all these different countries that are now in, in a sort of indirectly invested in in the Ukrainian uh, conflict because they have their citizens there. Um, and, you know, Brace is probably familiar with a similar dynamic with, with the YPG in Syria. Like, I'm not sure that foreign volunteers were necessarily um, hugely significant in terms of the actual combat between the YPG and ISIS. But it was very helpful for the Kurds uh, to have a number of people there as, you know, in some ways, they're just literally like, uh, you know, shields, like human shields, because it raises the stake for ISIS. It raises raises the stake for Turkey to make to bomb uh, Kurdish positions. Um, so even now, as we're seeing more uh, foreign legion units really coming together and actually being deployed, I still think it's it's mainly um, yeah, a, a war exercise in wartime propaganda. Yeah, you know, you mentioned the sort of the rumors of people being used as meat shields, um, which I also d- discounted as well. I think that was probably a lot of people whose nerves were getting the better of them. Um, but you know, similar similar rumors uh, happened in. You know, I, I heard similar things in Syria as well, um, which I also, you know, was not true. Um, but I think, uh, I, I, you know, it's funny, you know, you mentioned Turkey, like might, might be hesitant to, uh, to attack Kurdish positions if there were foreigners there. That turned out not to be the case. I mean, they, mm-hmm. it looks like they deliberately bombed a position with mm-hmm. uh, several foreigners in it, which killed, uh, um, Robin from, um, yeah from Sacramento, whose, whose parents I know pretty well at this point. And it's, mm. it's, um, in Ukraine though, I think it was a much more, I mean, I, they have the P the PR sort of machine that's that, that they obviously have set into motion. That's probably been set up over the past, you know, eight years, but really with the, uh, with the start of the war, I mean, has just been sort of incredible to watch how adept they've been. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the thing is, they didn't actually ever really need to make a foreign legion. They just needed to make the announcement that there was going to be one and have right. a, a certain few people. I mean, I was, uh, like many other people, reading the uh, the Reddit dedicated to getting people over there <laughs> in those first, uh, about that first month. And it was, God, excruciating to read, you know, sort of the, the questions that some people had, the really basic questions where if you're even asking them, you shouldn't leave your house, let alone go to yeah. uh, Kiev or Donbass. Um, yeah. Well, it's funny, right? Because it's like that, you know, it does sort of exist in this this realm of, you know, wartime propaganda as this kind of like fake thing that Zelensky is throwing out to shore up international support, like you were saying, Brace, like you are saying, Seth. And then suddenly 
as you kind of detailed specifically in the Harper's piece, it's like then the Ukrainian army has to deal with then the like meat space ramifications of like all these dudes from Alabama and from Reddit and from wherever and in the UK just like showing up at the border being like, all right, I'm here to fight. And then being like, we don't know what to do with you <clears throat> because we don't actually really need you. You need to go away, you know? <clears throat> and these guys, um, but it sounds like, I mean, very intent and, you know, being over there and, you know, by hook or by crook, figuring out how to, you know, meet up with somebody who will introduce them to somebody who will get them, you know, to the front line or whatever they have in their, um, you know, in their mind about like what it is that they're supposed to be doing over there based on just this like one fake thing that was yeah, just yeah. kind of invented out of thin air just as a press release. Yeah. Know? And this may show a bit in the Harper's piece, but for all those reasons, as I was reporting the story, I kind of lost interest a little bit in, in the mm. foreigners because they seemed a little bit like a sideshow sure. and, and was more interested in like what was going on in the battle of, of Kiev and the defense of Kiev. But Apart from their actual significance to the war effort, what really drew me to this story in the first place and to previous uh, uh, reporting that I've done on foreign fighters is the foreign fighters themselves and the motivations that that uh, that yeah. uh, impel them to do such a crazy thing um, and what it says about the places that they're coming from and the countries that they're coming from and the sort of media environment and the spectacle in which they're immersed um, and Brace, I, I, I don't know if you would mind me asking you a little bit about like, cause you went through the same process of like, I don't want to say radicalization, but you know, y- this happened to you. Um, yeah. and I wonder if you, cause you, so, so I, I wonder if I could ask you to kind of for background and, and so far as it reflects on the Ukrainian story, like, what was that like for you? You're, you were, um, I guess about 26 years old or so you're working at a flower shop in San no, no, Francisco. No, no, boxing gym at that time. Okay, all right, all right, and then and then then what happened? I mean, it probably started on Reddit for you too. Yeah, well, no, actually, I've never been a user of Reddit, thank God. But I, uh, I actually, I came across a news story about Ivana Hoffman, um, the, uh, yeah. the German woman who I think was the first, uh, the first foreign fighter, well, on the YPG side that was killed in uh, in Syria, um, in in the Battle of Kobani. And uh, she was with MLKP, who was was fighting underneath uh, sort of the YPG's command. And I got really sort of interested in 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 reading about it. And I realized that I was sort of obsessively, you know, looking at it. And uh, you know, uh, there's it's funny because I, I, sometimes I've seen people talk about my motivations, like that people I don't know who sort of like maybe half remember stories or. or I don't know, have, have, have heard things from other people or whatever. And it's, uh, you know, it's like, Oh, he got sober and then he was looking for something in life and he went over there. But really, um, I don't know. I, 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 I knew a lot of Kurdish people. Um, I, I knew a lot of Turkish people as well. Uh, and some of them had been there and through talking with them, I was like, well, I want to go there. Um, and at that time, really the only way for a foreigner to get there, as far as I could figure out, was to join the YPG. And, uh, you know, I had no, and this sounds a little absurd maybe, but like I had no particular animus against ISIS, you know, <laughs> like, I mean, yeah, they're bad and stuff, but you know, I, I, I to, to be like, I, I didn't, I didn't think of them in sort of the same like way that, that you hear people talking about like, you know, Russia as like this great threat to the world. Obviously they're a great threat to the people of that region. And, um, you know, and, and in some sense other parts of the world too, but, uh, 
you know, I, I wasn't like, I was like, I got to go stamp out ISIS before they get to, to like a know. Nazi fighter. You weren't it, thinking of yourself in that way. It, yeah, exactly. I was like, I, you know, I wasn't like, I'm going to go save the world or anything. Uh, and I had no, um, you know, I had no, no real, <laughs> I, I didn't think I was like a hero or was going to be like a great fighter or anything. I was just like, this, it seems like the only way I could go. And, and I, you know, I, I, I really agree with you that I'm actually, even though I'm obviously included in this category. I'm also fascinated by by foreign fighters um, and and meeting obviously quite a few of them, um, including some people who went to Ukraine afterwards. Uh, <clears throat> it was um, sort of just fascinating, I guess, character studies, just from a purely like um, you know point of view or my interest in people, which I have a great interest in people. And um, yeah, I, I I I it's I didn't actually maintain contact with really almost anybody after I got home. The one guy I really there's a couple guys I spoke to. Um, one guy uh, ended up killing himself. The other guy is doing just fine. Um, but uh, but I'm still, you know, whenever I get a chance, like I mean, I devoured this article when you put it out. Um, it really just, um, I don't know. There's a lot of sort of like fascinating people. <laughs> I <laughs> guess I guess is a way to put it. Well, it's really shaping up to be like this thing, like this sort of 21st century youth culture thing that people can do. Um, so of course it's very obscure and limited to its little corner of the internet, but like there's lots of opportunities to be a foreign fighter in conflicts now. And it's something very, you know, the word postmodern is overused. I'm not, I'm just kind of searching for the term for it. There's almost like this traveling core of foreign fighters now that can go from place to place. I mean, I guess it's pretty limited to Iraq, Syria, and Ukraine. Yeah. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised if we start seeing it popping up. Uh, Libya as well. Some some foreign fighters there. Burma too. Burma Rangers. Uh, yeah, could be. So it's starting to kind of be a thing where like people can, and countries that are uh, combatant or countries that are at war are able to now um, send out an international call to arms and have people who for their own uh, disparate motivations will come to flock to their country to fight. But I don't think we've ever seen anything like it on the scale of Ukraine before, because when you're talking about Ivana Hoffman and the YPG and Abdullah Ocalan, and I know you were, you didn't mention a second ago, but I know that certainly there was an ideological component for, yeah, for absolutely. you. Yeah. I mean, the Kurds were, uh, I don't know exactly how to define it. I would say anarcho-feminist, um, but whatever it was, it, it, it caught your attention and sympathies. Um, whereas, but you had to go and search for that. It was something very obscure. I mean, no, at that time, hardly anyone had heard about the Rojava revolution. And one big difference that I see is in this case, this is being blasted out to people everywhere. Yeah, everywhere. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so it's happening in much, much greater numbers. And you start to wonder, um, what's going to come of this. Uh, I don't believe that Ukraine has anything like 20,000 volunteers as they claim, Mm -hmm. Uh, probably in the high hundreds that is, is the, is a true, is a truer estimate. But even then, um, what, what's going to happen? What's going to become of having all of these foreigners uh, on the battlefield, especially when, you know, as a, as I was writing in the Rolling Stone piece, it looks like a lot of them, almost the majority, or excuse me, almost all of them, uh, are, uh, uh, Anglo veterans of, of wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. It's interesting, right? Because, Brace, when you went over to Syria, I feel like, I mean, I'm trying to kind of put myself back in that time period, but mm-hmm. the the kind of where the internet and social media and everything was yeah. at that point versus where it is now. And this is something we talked about right when the war in Ukraine broke out was that 
the amount of propaganda that we were seeing on social media and the kind of like, you know, all of the not you just recycled nonsense videos you would see that people would post, like trying to make it look like stuff that was happening in Ukraine, but it was obviously footage from, you know, previous conflicts or whatever, was stuff that we I think we both remember from during the the war in Syria, which really felt like kind of one of the first big um uh, I mean, big wars that, you know, so much propaganda happened yeah. online. And that was like kind of this new, like, battlefield that was sort of occurring. Um, and this, you know, this time with Ukraine, it kind of like ramped up even more. And so it's it's sort of like mirroring in that way. You know, you talk about the way that how easy it is. Um, for all of these guys going over to Ukraine to kind of connect with each other via Reddit or how it's way more mainstream. And it's, it's you know, you don't really have to be in these niche groups and seek out this stuff um, in, the, in, in ways that you used to, where you'd have to kind of carve out these little pathways. Like, they're, they've all been, for, like, you know, formed. They're all there. Um, or they're much wider than they used to be, at least. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, you know, the, it, it, I, it, apart from the what the foreign volunteers are actually doing in Ukraine, um, they're interesting to me as like individuals and the, even the ones Absolutely. that come from more like a right wing um, ideological, which I didn't find. Like most of the people I talked to had totally generic political beliefs. They were there to, to defend freedom and democracy. That was about it. I love a uh, radical centrist. <laughs> they really are. They really are like radical. You know, another thing I'll, I'll add is that another pattern that's clearly discernible is that these guys are much older, I think, in general. Mm. Than that's, the, that's something that really yeah. stuck out to me from yeah. a lot of your reporting is how many guys in their 50s there are. Totally, totally. And so it's like the, it's like a jihad for like, you know, for radical centrists who are radical middle-aged centrists uh, mm. who watch NBC and CNN, I guess. <laughs> Um, that I would not have expected, but certainly they are. I mean, actually I was looking and I have like a spreadsheet of people that have been, uh, killed in action or, or taken prisoner. I think their average age is 40. Wow. Um, so, so I, I'm not quite sure what to, what to make of that, but in, in, either way, like, you know, the places that these people are coming from, they're just like in this soup of social media and media in general. And, um, it just, I, th- I think that they're appealing characters because, uh, they're usually marginal. They're some, have some kind of marginal, uh, lifestyle. They're typically not college educated, uh, people. Uh, and I totally get like the, like the, um, emotional drive to want to go and be at the center of world events, to do something mm-hmm. special, to not be just confined totally to the banality of a, a lower middle class or a working class existence, uh, and to take part in this kind of thing. So, yeah, to, uh, even though I do play up some of the Blackley comic elements of this, like I, I'm not here to shit on these guys in, in any way um, because it's something so so extraordinary to save up all your money, uh, buy a plane ticket and go to, to a country that you've never uh, been to and may not have been able to find on a map until you started getting into one of these wormholes. Um, and then you're there and then you're in the middle of a real war. And Brace, if I could bring it back to you again, I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about like those first days, like, stepping off the the plane in the Erbil airport and it's like, holy shit, now all of a sudden you're 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 in Iraq and you're really faced with going through with it. Like what what was that like for you given that like so many other hundreds or possibly thousands of people are now going through the same thing in Ukraine? Well, first it was Suleimania because Erbil oh, okay. is yes. a place yes. I can <laughs> as for as is forbidden to me as Turkey is. But um 
You know, it was it was jarring. Uh, I, it was the 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 YPG's um, communications, as I'm sure you know, are not always the clearest. And um, you know, it's a it's a big leap of faith to just like get on a plane to to Sulaimania, and um, and to just have to hand your phone to a taxi cab driver and have him call a number and then go to wherever that number says. Uh, I mean, it was funny because in actually getting over there, there were so many delays and so many times that we just had to sit around and wait for several days, uh, with no, you know, obviously we didn't have our phones. Um, and you kind of just like sat there and and looked at the wall or, or, or tried to, you know, practice Kurdish on somebody. Um, but I gotta be honest, like it was for me at least, um, it was fine. You know, I, I actually, I was probably the first day it was really jarring because obviously I was a little jet lagged and also I was in a very confusing situation. The, the, the liaison between the smuggler and basically getting to the actual guy who took us over the, over the, the, the river was an annoying process because the guy that, that was, that was facilitating that was just a fucking psycho, um, who later, oh, the rumor was actually ran off with all of our information and gave it to Turkey. But, um. I mean, who knows if that's true, but that's what, that's sort of, um, that's what went around afterwards. But, uh, but once I actually got into Syria, you know, it was, it was jarring for the first, I would say couple of days, but then you just get into a routine. Um, and I had, I had read extensively about it. I had spoken to several people I knew in my you know personal life who had gone over there. Um, and so I knew somewhat of what to expect, um, and frankly, I mean, you, you know, we were just basically for a month in the, in the, in the training academy. And so that was really like, it was, it was kind of gradually easing us in there. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I can't imagine, you know, the, the one thing I did try to like really focus on was learning the language. Um, and that is something that I just keep in all of your reporting, you know, reading about this. I can't imagine going over to Ukraine and not being able to read Cyrillic letters or mm-hmm, speak Ukrainian yeah. at all. I mean, the, the thing about Kurdish is it's actually a fairly, once you get the hang of it, it's a fairly, you know, it's a simple language. Um, you know, it's by that, I mean, like that there's rules that make sense. And, you know, generally there's not too many synonyms for different words. Uh, and also the, the letters are, are, I mean, I'm not, I don't know exactly the word for it, but it basically uses the Turkish alphabet, which is yeah. legible to, uh, to somebody mm-hmm. who, who, who speaks English. I cannot for the life of me imagine going over to, I mean, I've been in Ukraine and I yeah. couldn't tell what the fuck was going on 90% of the time. And I yeah. was just trying to get a cup of coffee and go to a and museum. Imagine you got to go through Pol- Poland to get to Ukraine. So you got to understand God. Polish and yes. then Ukrainian <laughs> yeah. and be able to differentiate it from Russian. Yeah. Yeah, so that was one of my big questions um, because, yeah, like you say, Cyrillic alphabet, totally uh, indecipherable. I mean, I couldn't read the train uh, schedule. Mm, yeah, to get someone same. To help. Yeah. Um, but so that was one of my big questions. How can, how can Ukraine possibly have 20,000 foreign legionnaires in this unit that has a splashy website and all this other stuff? Like no, no one else speaks Ukrainian. So how is it possible? And when I asked Ukrainian officials about this, they would always say, well, you know, Ukrainian young people speak English. Uh, and there are people in the army who speak English. Um, to me, that struck me as kind of a cop-out answer. But as a clearer picture has developed over the, over the subsequent like four months, um, and I have been able to get like insider accounts from small squads uh, that have been of foreigners that of English-speaking foreigners that have been in combat. It seems like that's pretty much that is what's happening. They're, they're organized in small groups that speak English, and then they'll liaise with a member of the Ukrainian army who speaks English. Um, 
Now, how effective that's actually going to be? Uh, yeah, probably not too effective. And um, I think that, you know, the, that POW video that I sent you of the two of the two guys being interrogated by a Russian interrogator, two of them were captured. Um, they both Americans, both veterans, um, and they spoke of real miscommunication with their unit. Oh, yeah. uh, at least I hope it was miscommunication because otherwise the situation they were describing is that on their very first mission, they went out as a squad, uh, fired one shot, missed, ran away, hid in a hole, and then surrendered to, to Russian forces. But on their way out, they, they sort of got overrun by the retreating Ukrainians yeah. who told them, hey, you guys stay right here and cover our retreat while we get in the vehicles and leave. And so they were just basically abandoned by the Ukrainians. Now, that was a Russian uh, interrogation video. Who knows? You know, you have to take it with a grain of salt. They're clearly under duress, facing possible yeah. execution. Um, but it sounds like a lot of miscommunication. And yeah, the, the language issues is a big part of that. You know, the, and the, the French Foreign Legion, they, they place a huge emphasis on language training because that's essential to have any kind of functional foreigners uh, brigade. Well, that's something that stuck out to me about your report in Rolling Stone about the American that was killed as well. And I really noticed that similarity when I was watching the interrogation video of these these two Americans is that there seems to be a lot of problems with communication, uh, whether the community, it's language barriers, but also basic like squad to squad or team to team communication. Um, it seems like both of those situations possibly could have been avoided with really just a basic modicum of communication. The interrogation video, I agree. I mean, these guys are being handled seems pretty expertly. The guy, the guy, at least, I, mean, I don't know if he's the translator or the handler or what, but the guy that's talking to them is really, um, he's good at his job. And so who knows if that's actually the truth? Um, they, you know, their stories differ a tiny little bit. Um, but yeah, it does seem like they were possibly left behind. And, you know, I can see that kind of scenario happening, uh, mm-hmm. again, if that's, if that's actually what happened. Um, and I can I can only imagine how terrifying that would have been, you know, to see these sort of trucks driving off in the distance and being like, wait, well, maybe I should have possibly been on one of those trucks. Um, but that's 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 something that really sticks out sticks out to me about this is that just it's such a foreign environment, and it's not only even if you're a veteran, um, you know, you, now you're on the other side. Well, you're you know, obviously it's combined arms warfare on the Ukrainian side. But now you're the subject of missile mm. strikes. You're the subject of airstrikes. You actually are at a disadvantage when it comes to in some in some instances when it comes to material and and to and to yeah. armor and and you know and to transportation. And I think a really great indication of that. I, mean, I don't want to say great, but an indication of that is those missile strikes mm-hmm. on the uh, on the on the foreign foreign training base. And you were yeah. you were in country for that, right? I know it was a pretty big deal in the formation yeah. of the International Legion. Yeah, they the Yavori base. Uh, that was where they were initially congregating foreign volunteers. Because one thing I was looking for in trying to assess how real uh, the foreign legion is and how much of a flesh and blood existence it had on the ground as opposed to an online existence was where is their training base? Like where is their base? Who is their commander? What does their chain of command look like? Um, and they did have a base. They did have an area at the very beginning. It was Yavori. And Russia just uh, fired this volley of cruise missiles at it. That yeah. he, there's like one video of it, and it was I so destructive. It. You can see like a, the hole is so deep that you can actually see the water table like 30 feet down um, from the impact that this cruise missile made. 
Honestly, man, I have no idea what happened at Yavoriv. I mean, almost every volunteer that I spoke to who was there said that they personally saw foreigners killed. Like they were like, oh, I saw, I saw their bodies being dragged out of the rubble. And yet here it is, uh, I think three months later, uh, and there still hasn't been a single confirmed Westerner killed uh, in Yavoriv. So what the hell happened there? I don't know. But I think one thing to keep in mind is the possibility that the Ukrainians are um, keeping concealed the news of a lot. I think a lot more foreigners may have died than the, the Ukrainians have disclosed so far. Mm-hmm. Because when I reported Zabielski's death, it was like a month after it happened. And it just came to me by accident. Someone messaged me on Facebook and told me about it. Um, but he had been dead for a month. The State Department knew about it. The Ukrainians knew about it, but it hadn't been published. Wow. So how, how many more cases are there like that out there? So one thing that you had said... <laughs> I can't remember for the life of me exactly when you said this, but at least a couple of months ago was that you had heard that JSOC was operating in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And so this is a different kind of foreign volunteer. Oh yeah. <laughs> I don't know about volunteer. I guess that we have an all volunteer military. Um, so in a very technical sense, a foreign volunteer, uh, and people got really mad at you for that. In fact, I will go ahead and say that every single time that you have tweeted about Ukraine, People have been very angry at you. Uh, I, I know that you posted a text message uh, exchange with a, a Marine that people were saying was fake. And then mm. obviously you came out with an article about the exact same incident a couple of days later. This is the, the incident that we're referencing here with the American being killed. Actually, mm. obvious. it was very obvious if you're reading it wasn't fake. But, um, you know... I, I, you know, people got really mad at you. And then, then I think it was just yesterday, the New York times comes out and essentially confirms what you had been saying that the CIA and, and their assassination arm, that's not all they do, but it's a very large aspect of what they do. JSOC we're operating in Ukraine. Yeah. Uh, so I heard about that initially. Um, I think a week or two after the, after the war started, a, a, former JSOC colonel who was instrumental in creating the AFOs, the advanced force operations, mm-hmm. which is like the JSOC of JSOC that does this is super covert stuff. Um, he told me that they were over there. Um, and I, I don't know why he told me that. Um, maybe he is just a guy who likes to talk, but in any case, while I was reporting, being focused on identifying Americans who were over there, it came up repeatedly. It wasn't just that. The um, Ukrainian officials that I spoke to, I would ask them, are there Americans in combat? Is the Foreign Legion actually deploying people to the front lines? They would say, no, not yet. We're holding them in reserve. But they all told me that there were highly trained uh, retired specialists from the United States and other uh, NATO countries who who were on the front lines. So that was something that I heard consistently throughout it. There are ex-operators who are in the battle from the start. Um, Now, obviously, there's a pretty... Pretty, uh, there's a gray line there between, or a blurry line there, I should say, between um, retired and active. Because just think of the community that we're talking about. It's not really something that you uh, retire from. And yeah, as you mentioned, the the Times came out with a repeat with a piece uh, recently that's clearly sourced to uh, U.S. officials who, basically, the way I read it is these officials got on the phone and called the New York Times, and were like, "Hey, yeah. right, you prepared to copy." Uh, we're about to tell you some some good I- I- info. Mm-hmm. Um, I wouldn't say it directly confirms the thing about JSOC because the the New York Times article stopped just short of confirming that there are U.S. operators uh, yeah. in the fight, but they do say that there are French ones, British ones from other countries, and that there is CIA oper- like active CIA operations going on in Ukraine right now. 
also um, back in May, the CIA added two stars to its wall. Um, Or it might have actually been four. I really can't figure it out. There's like conflicting reports, but at least two that they added back in May. Can you explain what that means? Yeah, when CIA, when covert officers are killed in combat, um, their names are typically not disclosed. Sometimes they are. There was that guy in Somalia not too long ago. Um, but typically they're not, if they were covert under a covert identity, then, um, that only their families are informed, but the CIA has a memorial wall where they put up stars like these black stars. And I think there's 139 of them, uh, currently, uh, and they added the, uh, 138th and 139th back in May. So it's like, gosh, I wonder what that country, what country they, I mean, they could have been like drowned in the scuba diving incident in the Philippines or something, um, mm-hmm. or whatever, but I, it seems pretty likely that that happened in, in Ukraine, given the extent of um, uh, U.S. covert operations that are there that are now basically confirmed. What's your feeling about why the why the CIA would call up the New York Times to get them to publish that story or that information? That, that's a really good question. Um, I have no idea why they would do that. Because, I mean, people have been speculating about that. And the Russians had said that from the get-go, that there were... Um, not just U.S., but obviously NATO special forces, very active in Ukraine, Donbass, you know, mm-hmm. all over um, since the, I mean, since the beginning of the war. Mm-hmm. And so it seems odd, or it's just kind of, I don't know, odd, odd timing, or I don't know. I could know, I couldn't really wrap my head around why they would come out and do that, but I don't know. It's interesting. It is interesting. Story. And, and to draw all this together, all these things that we're describing, CIA covert operations, uh, JSOC or other NATO commandos. Um, and then also, needless to say, the provision of uh, huge amounts of heavy weaponry to Ukraine, sure. direct financial assistance, because the State Department is just funding the, the, the Zelensky government. Mm-hmm. Um, and in addition to that, the Foreign Legion that, as we're saying, is mostly comprised of uh, U.S. and British veterans who just uh, years or months ago were getting a, pay, were getting a paycheck. Um from the Pentagon or the Ministry of Defense. So all of this taken together shows that the U.S. is as fully engaged in the proxy war in Ukraine as they could possibly be without having actual regular army infantry units deployed on the ground. Yeah. hoping that maybe we could pivot for a second i love saying mm-hmm. that pivot um and maybe turn our focus a little bit to the third piece that which will be i'm going to call forthcoming but like yeah. brace said by the time this episode comes out should be already out i think mm-hmm. um or the piece should be out but the piece and the podcast will be out how about that um which is the piece in the intercept um that details maybe some of the kind of far right elements and you kind of trying to track down, you know, some of these sort of, I mean, I don't know if calling them neo-Nazis is correct. I I don't know how they identify, but Mm. um, you know, how these guys, these kind of um, yeah, like far right extremists, like what percentage of these guys are over there, where they're coming from, what their motivations are and, Mm. you know, What's the what's the deal with that? Yeah, this was something that uh, my editor at, at Harper's was keen to know about when I first went over there because, mm-hmm. of course, 
there has been the Azov Battalion for years, which has okay. relentlessly attracted uh, controversy for its quasi-fascist ideology, um, pretty unapologetically espoused by uh, its various leaders. Um, there have been uh, skinhead-type volunteers in the Donbass. Mm. Not many, but there's been reports of them over the years. And Ukraine, just in general, has a very um, assertive and aggressive uh, ultra-nationalist sector, or far-right sector in Ukraine. It's very active politically. So as soon as the news of the Foreign Legion came out, people are questioning, well, is this going to start attracting right-wing dudes from all over the world to go and fight in Ukraine? And as far as I was able to tell, dealing with that just herd, that multitude of people that were flocking to the Polish border trying to join, really not that many. Mm-hmm. Um, it, like we were saying before, it's mostly just like older dudes. It's just like dads, um, like radicalized dads, like midlife crisis style, I guess. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I couldn't, uh, of course, people may be keeping this on the down low because they know that I'm a, you know, a, a reporter for like the, the liberal mainstream uh, media. Uh, but I doubt that because I'm, I'm an American. I can tell kind of like I can get like a right wing vibe from somebody if that's the deal with them. Couldn't really uh, detect any of that. However, um, as things have developed, you know, when you're reporting on war, you you sometimes have to use deaths as like a proxy, especially in Ukraine when you can't get access to the front lines, when it's a very secretive uh, military culture. It's an ex-Soviet military, so it's it's extremely secretive. I mean, Brace, the access that I had with the YPG, you know, when I met you in Syria, they basically just gave me free reign. There was no minder. There was nothing. They were just, yeah. here you go. Yeah. Here's, yeah. You just here's cruised your... over and hung out with us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I ate chicken. Um, it, but they were just kind of uh, like, here's your fellow countrymen. They're over there. Do what you want. Uh, Ukraine's totally different story. You, you, you can't get, you can't get access. Um, so as I'm saying, like you have to go off the deaths as kind of a proxy for who's involved in this. And so on June 4th, the International Legion announced that there had been four more guys killed in action. Uh, one of them, a French guy uh, named uh, Wilfried Blario, they published a, a picture of him on their official Facebook page. And he's wearing front and center in his body armor, a badge of something called the Misanthropic Division, uh, which, I yes. had never, which I had never heard of before. But as soon as I looked into it, I found pretty quickly that it is... Uh, said to be a sort of black-pilled uh, volunteer wing of the Azov Battalion. Oh and I uh, got into their, tel- I found their Telegram uh, group and uh, found that it, it was a sort of subculture of the foreign volunteers in Ukraine mm. who are not just far-right extremists, but hardcore like neo-Nazis. Like their Telegram is, is full of um, like black sun wheels and hail Hitler and all of everything. It's all in there. Um, all the classics, all of the classics are, are in there. Um, and Blerio, uh, there's photos of him. The telegram channel was the first to announce his death. So he was part of this like uh, subculture, uh, or click. I don't know exactly what to call it because I'm not sure if it's an actual military wing. I'm not sure if it's, as we we're talking about before with the international legion itself, not sure how real it is, how, whether it has a commander, et cetera, whether it's really part of the Azov battalion or whether it's just something that anyone online can claim. Yeah, just um, like a big group chat for like, <laughs> uh, freaks. Yeah. Well, regardless, this French chat, this French guy who was 32 years old, French army veteran, he was 100% a neo-Nazi. There's pictures of him on the Telegram, uh, you know, like dressed in his misanthropic division T-shirt. 
Mm-hmm. Um, there's like flags of him, et cetera. So, and then there was another guy, a German named Benjamin Clavis. Again, the International Legion published a photo of him, in which you can see on the back of his right hand, he's got an iron cross uh, tattooed very conspicuously on the back of his right hand. Um, and, you know, the, sometimes in the U.S., you'll see the iron cross displayed in a kind of like non uh, racist context. Like it's yes, the- Seth. My grandfather won that for bravery during the First World War. He was at Verdun. Okay. Well, actually, they they give out the U.S. Army's marksmanship uh, medal looks exactly yeah. like an Iron Cross. So yeah, I didn't. That's a whoops, in my opinion. It, it could it could be. Um, but Clavis, the guy that was killed, he's from Germany. Okay. Yes. So there's not a whole lot of ambiguity when you have a huge Iron Cross on the back of your right yeah. hand, and you're from Germany. That's the hand he all. That's the hand he ollies with on his independent brand skateboard. Yeah, yeah, that's right, man. <laughs> um, so these are indications that among the volunteers, at least among the European volunteers, there are some of these guys. Which before I had been a bit dismissive of. You know, I have other concerns about the war in Ukraine. I have other concerns about the foreign legion. I wasn't really tracking the right wing thing, but lo and behold, here it is. It looks like, yeah, there really, there really is an element of that. And so the question with them, I think, is going to be, well, how much of a danger do they pose to their home countries when they get done fighting in, like this against a technologically advanced enemy in combined arms warfare, you know, on the Donbass front line? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I know there was um, concern about that with a lot of the European YPG volunteers. In fact, most of those guys, not most, but a lot of Europeans I know have been arrested at one point or another uh, for their experience in the YPG. And, you know, talking about, you know, you you and I both know Tommy uh, (laughs) and, you know, he, he faced some pretty serious prison time uh, and was couched in the language of like radicalization and possible, you know, a possible threat to, uh, to Denmark. Um, You know, in America, it was a different case because it's not actually illegal to fight if you're not fighting another government, which actually raises some questions about the legality of American volunteers in Ukraine, although I'm sure that they will all be overlooked. Um, but, uh, but certainly, you know, obviously we were surveilled in various different ways, um, you know, interrogated stuff like that. But, uh, it's, um, it's going to be, it's going to be interesting because there was one guy, Dan Baker, who was actually, I believe at Chaz, um, which that's, a rough one. Um, but he was, uh, he was actually arrested for, uh, passing out some pretty misadvised flyers, let's say in Florida, basically saying that, uh, I think it was maybe around J six or in the lead up to that being like, if Trump supporters, you know, don't, uh, accept the election or whatever, like we should take guns out and, and like make, it was a pretty violent, violent flyers essentially. And he had been, he had been flying for it. And, you know, it was a, it was a short video I watched on him and he looked like a pretty, um, I don't know, down, down and out guy, like a guy who was pretty lost after, after fighting over there. Um, but as far as I know, that's the only, that's the only ex YPG person who's been arrested anywhere for, uh, for, you know, something, I guess, similar, like in violence related reasons. Um, I do think though that like, you know, if we've seen in the past, I don't know, five, 10 years and really in the past 30 years that there is a pretty high incidence in, in, in certain places of, of right-wing violence, um, certainly a lot more, um, capacity for that in some sectors of the right wing, mm-hmm. uh, especially the extreme right wing. Um, 
And so, yeah, I agree. Like, I don't know what it's, I mean, you, you are seeing essentially like a cadre of veterans being trained both within Ukraine and well, all of it's within Ukraine, but both Ukrainians and foreigners being trained by, you know, Azov is, is no joke. I mean, they are, they are, uh, you know, not only are they obviously, I mean, they say that they're not ideological now, but they are, um, they're sort of renowned for their prowess. You know, they are, um, they are a pretty fearsome fighting unit, especially in comparison to, to, to other parts of the Ukrainian army. Um, I know a lot of them were, were captured at, as, as of stall. I know that some of them are being traded for, uh, you know, I'm sure that many of them eventually will be traded for prisoners, uh, in, in the future. I know, I think it was like 150 yesterday. Um, but they're actually rebuilding Azov elsewhere, and and I know that uh, you know you actually you I believe sent me a picture that you actually interviewed the commander mm-hmm. of the Azov battalion, and so can you can you tell us about that experience? Sure, um, I think in general, uh, Western liberals who are who are backing Ukraine uh, are in denial about the role of Azov. They yes. try to minimize its size. They try to minimize seven hundred. Only six hundred, seven hundred people. They say. Is that what they say? That's yeah, not that's true. that's the new number. It went down from two thousand, which was what people were saying at the beginning of the war. Which actually, I guess, it probably did go down by a couple thousand people. But well, both uh, Andrew Beletsky, the founder of the Azov movement, and Maxim Zorin, who's a, a high level commander in Azov, I think he's the commander of Azov Special Operations. Both of them told me that Azov has several thousand. Uh, soldiers and that they're growing rapidly. And when I saw their base in Kiev, it was full of new recruits. Um, mm-hmm. That was what was going on. They're all filling out paperwork. Um, and yeah, as you say, they're no joke. They're the most squared away, hardcore looking soldiers that you'll see in Ukraine because a lot of Ukrainian soldiers look really schlubby, to be honest. Uh, they're people that just came out of civilian roles and joined the army. Azov is not like that. Um, people to get accepted to Azov, you have to look a certain way. You have to hold yourself a certain way. You have to have a certain military bearing um, that's consistent with their sort of their ideal uh, of like Aryan masculinity. I mean, there's no need to make any bones about it. I think people go a little bit too far when they just say Azov is just straight up neo-Nazi. I'm not sure you can say that about them. Uh, They've never called themselves Nazis. They've never defined themselves as national socialists, Um, but it's not too far of a step. The way they do define themselves is not too far away from it. They they are ultra-nationalists. They are far as far to the right as you can possibly be um, on the political spectrum. Well, I would say in, in that instance, if it walks like a duck, <laughs> you know? Sure. That's, I mean, I, I get what you're saying. However, they don't call for like genocide against Jews, for example. I mean, I'm not trying to make apologies for Azov, but look, at least they'll pretend to be like when you interview it, they'll pretend yeah. to be, have a, a basically acceptable political, um, idea. Mm-hmm. I tried to ask Bolesky who is, who his philosophical and political heroes were. He actually gave a name of some Singaporean philosopher who I could never figure out who exactly he was. Um, but do you my, remember one of our listeners might know, I can't remember, man, but look for a Singaporean authoritarians because that's who it's going to be. Well, that's, um, I mean, throw, throw a, a, a very heavy rock in yeah. Singapore <laughs> that you can't even throw very far and you'll, you'll hit about 50 of them. Well, they will tell you straight up. They don't believe in democracy. Uh, Azov does not believe in democracy. Um, their philosophy is that sort of Nietzschean ideal of a strong leader coming to the fore through the w- express will of the Volk and um, and military heroism. That's the that's the that's their ideal. 
of how society is organized. Um, and their defense of Mariupol has made them, has greatly increased their prestige in the eyes of ordinary yes. Ukrainians. They're kind of like, uh, they kind of have a bad rap in the West. They're, they're uh, looked at askance. Not in Ukraine, man. Not in Ukraine. Yeah. Because I mean, just imagine, I mean, they were prepared to fight to the death at, at uh, the Azovstal plant uh, only because the government ordered the, them to surrender. Did they surrender? They held out for months, three months. Um, so you, Ukrainians look at that. Young Ukrainian men who are all faced with the possibility of being drafted or in some way wanting to join the army, they look at Azov and think these are the guys that I want to be. Right. If you're going to be drafted, you want to go into that as opposed to the other guys who, you know, like you said, maybe, you know, don't have the best um, training or doesn't seem like the safest bet. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I got to say in that article, if there's a, you know, if I'm a regular Ukrainian guy who has to join the military, I'd probably rather join like the hardcore, like really together guys than like the guys you smoked weed with in a basement. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, me too. Uh, well, that's just territorial defense. That's like the big reserve militia, yeah. which is why to bring it back, you know, the foreign legion is really unnecessary. And they have this vast militia of untrained guys that they can um, basically pull from indefinitely because Ukraine is a huge country. And although Russia does have a much bigger army, they haven't like the Russian expeditionary force is not much larger than the Ukrainian army. They're pretty well matched in terms of personnel on the battlefield. Both sides mm-hmm. are able to call up lots as needed. You know, we mentioned early in the episode the video of the two POWs, the American POWs that were taken, and a pretty expertly produced, I mean, I want to say expertly, but a pretty well-produced YouTube video, um, you know, essentially of their, I mean, it's 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 sort of couched as an interview, but it's essentially interrogations or public-facing interrogations of these two guys. Um, you know, do you have any indication of how many, uh, how many Westerners have been taken uh, prisoner essentially or surrendered looks like seven according to my count but there's probably a lot more than that those are just the seven that we know about yeah because i mean i know um i know the two first guys who i believe the the first two guys who had right. been, been taken prisoner uh aiden yeah. and sean um i met sean i believe when i was leaving syria uh he had fought in the ypg and i actually can't remember if i met aiden there but uh a, a, a year later, when I was in in Greece, uh, actually just on vacation, I went down to the Lavrio refugee camp, uh, which is a very large Kurdish refugee camp that I think might now be closed. Um, and he was actually staying there, and uh, and I spoke to him, you know, at length, and he had mentioned that he wanted to go to Ukraine. Um, you know, this was a sort of popular topic among. A few of the uh, really the kind of more non-ideological guys. In fact, I would say exclusively among the more non-ideological guys. Um, and I had uh, I had I had told him that was probably not a very good idea. Um, but he, you know, he did it. I think he joined the Ukrainian army. I guess the next year in 2018. Uh, and and he and Sean are and, and and another guy. I think from maybe from Morocco were captured. Um, in, I believe, Mariupol, but not in Azovstal. They weren't in, they, as, as far as I know, they weren't in Azov Battalion. But um, they, uh, you know, they, there's a very public footage of them being put on trial and uh, and sentenced to death. Um, 
and uh, you know, I, I, I was just wondering what your take on that is. Um, you know, if 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 these guys will actually be put to death, or or there will be something like a more high profile prisoner swap, because if I'm the Russians here, this is a pretty uh, these are these are, you know, some pretty good pieces to hold on to in order to swap for some guys that you might really want. Yeah, no doubt those guys are in deep shit. Uh, yeah, can you imagine being dude? interrogated by Russian military intelligence. That's pretty scary. Um, yeah. I mean, dude, my, I, I'm telling you, I want to never be in a situation <laughs> where that's even a possibility <laughs> right. of that to happen to me. Right. Um, they, so they have been sentenced to death in the interrogation of other two guys, which is much more lengthy. Um, they are asked directly by the interrogator, do you realize that you could be put to death? Yeah. Um, which is a pretty intimidating question to, to be asked. God, what, of course. Whether they'll actually do that, I mean, first take is it seems like unlikely. Uh, but on the other yeah. hand, like, what does, the United, what does the United States have to trade for them? Yeah. Um, because they're not actual combatants in the war. So are they going to trade like, are the Ukrainians going to trade prisoners? I just don't know how it would work exactly. But just imagine if they went through with it and just stone cold took six or seven Americans and British guys and just shot them in the back of the head. Like yeah. what would the United States do about it? What would NATO do about it? And I don't think there's anything that they could do about it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't think they have any way to stop the Russians from carrying out, um, those death sentences, which would be fucking crazy if they actually did that. I mean, it would be, it would be totally insane. Yeah. I, I, that's, that's the thing is like when, when that was actually announced, you know, I, I obviously, I, I paid attention to the news of them after they'd been captured, you know, what was going on, um, you know, with their trial and, you know, they made Aiden and this is actually kind of an interesting tactic that the Russians have been doing. They, they actually, you know, they put the interrogation of the two Americans on YouTube. Uh, they actually made Aiden, it looks like, start his own YouTube channel, <laughs> um, which is really, and I think that might be technically cruel and unusual punishment. But um, That's banned in the Geneva Conventions. Yes. <laughs> no, it actually is banned in the Geneva Conventions, yeah. I think. Um, and, uh, and, you know, it's, it's, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I agree with your assessment that, like, it seems unlikely from where I'm sitting right now that they would actually be executed. Um, you know, Russia, I believe officially doesn't execute people. I mean, they, they, they don't, they don't actually enforce the death penalty if they have it. I don't think they even have it, but they, regardless, like it seems highly unlikely that they would be executed, uh, by, by Russia proper. But, you know, in these two republics that technically aren't Russia, there is the death penalty. Um, you know, they are, uh, I can't speak for the other guys, but I know Aiden and Sean, I know have both been, or from what I've read, have actually both been, they're Ukrainian citizens, I think. They've both been mm -hmm. there for like right. three or four years and right. in the armed forces for that long. Um, you know, I they, I think, you know, legally, they are members of the Ukrainian military in America, and excuse me, they're never American citizens, but they're uh, members of the Ukrainian military and Ukrainian citizens. So I don't think even if they were legally able to be executed as like mercenaries or something, um, they could be, but again, that's all that shit's fake. So who knows? Yeah. I think it's more likely they languish in a Russian prison. I, I'm also, I would yeah. say, um, not to be insensitive to the, to those guys who've been captured. I hope, of course, they, yeah. I hope that they get released. 
Um, I certainly hope that they're not executed. Um, but honestly, I feel more sorry for that WNBA player who got arrested for having like CBD vapes in her in her luggage like right before the war started. She yeah. that's just really bad luck there. Yeah, she's gonna be in for. Oh, I mean, who knows yeah, how long she'll be story. in for? I know. But, yeah, I mean, that's the thing is like, I mean, they knew what they were signing up for. You know, that was always a possibility. Um, and, obviously, I hope they don't get executed, and I hope that they do get traded. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that is, I can't even imagine. And their imprisonment and the possibility of their execution is just another illustration of what I think is the biggest issue around the Foreign Legion, is that the existence of so many guys from NATO countries taking part in hostilities in Ukraine is just going to continuously draw NATO mm-hmm. countries deeper into the conflict as they get either killed in action or or taken prisoner. Well, speaking of YPG or PKK, which of course have no affiliation to each other, um, you know, at, I was reading the news today that that Turkey is no longer going to block Sweden and Finland's membership into NATO. Um, and a big sticking point there was the uh, uh, existence of let's say pro-Kurdish organizations that operated legally on Swedish and Finnish soil. Um, and they are now going to, at least they say, I mean, I read the, the, the agreement between the three countries, at least they say that they're now going to enforce, um, basically terror laws against them. And so whether a bunch of Kurdish people now get deported to be, uh, you know, imprisoned for life or executed in Turkey, uh, in exchange for, for these two countries joining NATO, we'll see, but yeah, it is, uh, it does seem like, I mean, was it today the NATO conference? Or was that? Yeah, was that, it's yeah. in Madrid right now. Yeah, yeah. Um, or today, rather, the start of it. Um, I mean, it's it's it does seem like this is this is going to both draw NATO closer together, but also like focus that closeness into Ukraine and just just more and more billions of dollars, material uh, and manpower get sent over there. Yeah. Yeah, the Ukraine war is not going to end anytime soon. This foreign legion business isn't going away, uh, and we're just going to see more and more of this, uh, unfortunately. Yeah, and at that point, you have to wonder if the foreign legion is a feature or a bug of the of <laughs> drawing NATO more and more deeper in. Uh, yeah, I think we know the answer to that. The, mm-hmm. It was something that the Ukrainians did very deliberately, um, and. I think it's possible that they may have been consciously thinking about the YPG volunteers when they decided to do this thing. Uh, there may have been advisors to the Zelensky government who said, hey, here's an idea. Yeah. Um, this led to really great press in Syria. We can do the same thing over here. I think that the Ukrainians are being advised by, that would be an interesting thing to try to track down. What consulting companies are working with the My Ukrainians God. To, shake, I know. Yeah, to shake their media? The best and the brightest out of Chicago, <laughs> Illinois. If you are a journalist that uh, is listening to this and has access to that kind of information, please look into it or just even just let us know. Mm-hmm. Um, because, yeah, I can only imagine how, like, Dark McKinsey is mm-hmm. is dealing with, with sort of Ukraine, Ukraine PR behind <laughs> yeah. the scenes. Some little Buttigieg guy, a legion of them just tapping away at MacBooks at some brewery in Kiev. Yeah, that's the real foreign legion. <laughs> it really is. I mean, certainly a thousand times more effective than like, you know, six 55 year old, uh, <laughs> you know, X, whatever, uh, gate guards with fucking, yeah. you know, Kalashnikovs. Malcolm Nance. Yeah. My God. Shout out Malcolm Nance. Shout out Malcolm. All right. Um, well, my f- computer's re- literally about to die. Uh, and I don't have enough plugs to both plug in my computer 
and my microphone. That's so Seth, crazy. I know. Well, you know, you know our problems with plugs, Liz. Um, Seth, it has been a real pleasure having you on again. Thank you guys so much for having me. Um, keep on exposing those pedophiles and uh, stay out of Utah. Okay. And I want to make it clear. Actually, I don't know if you can say this, but can you tease your Jason new Fort Bragg article? There's a new Fort Bragg article coming out. Um, it'll probably be in the September issue of Rolling Stone. First um, of all, September issue, Blockbuster. Blockbuster. Oh, the September issue is always the biggest issue. Is it? Set. Oh, yeah. Classic. Of all magazines or just Of all magazines. Of all magazines. Yeah, September issue. Second of all, all, we got to have you back on for that because the people, myself, Brace, Young Chomsky, none of us can get enough of this, I don't know, crisis at Fort Bragg. Well, we've got our hands on the documents and we're going to blow the lid off. Um, That's what's coming. (laughs) That's what's coming next. So stay tuned for that. I love it when a guy gets his hands on the documents. loves having seth on the podcast he's great me too i know it's it's i i i seth is one of my favorite guests but also i feel like one of the most likely guests to be killed at work no well i mean that's objectively true oh because you mean yeah conflict journalist yeah i mean he's always going to like somewhere scary yeah. Do you know that I kill? I, I might have mentioned this when we had him on the first time, but I still have a little compass Seth gave me, which he doesn't remember giving me mm. uh, in Syria in my backpack. That's nice. Do you use it? No, I have like actually perfect direction. I'm not kidding. I do not. That's absolutely not true. 100% true. I literally always can orient myself. Oh. Yeah, I'm not joking. I really can do that. I have really good memory of directions as well. All right. Well, I don't believe that for a second. I'm Liz. My name is, uh, well, I'll just go with Brace. And of course we, okay, fine. Um, all right. All right. You know what? Bigoted, racist, uh, uh, asshole. Uh, ooh, what's DC? What does C stand for? Uh, creamy. Um, and, E stands for English. No, you know what? Elephantitis of the dick. Belden. And of course, we are joined by producer Young Chomsky, and the podcast is called T R U E A N 0 N. It's called True Anon. We'll see you next time. Bye bye. Jeffrey Epstein. Jeffrey Epstein.